0: talk is finding our north star. There was a great saint who lived in India, a woman saint, who lived in India this century. Well, actually, we're in another century now, aren't we? (laughs) Can't say this century anymore because there hasn't been that much of it. Um, Last century, in the 20th century. Her name was Ananda Mayama, and she died just in the, I think in the 50s or the 60s, or maybe even the 70s. Um, I didn't have the opportunity to meet her, but I've been very inspired by her teachings that have been left. And one of the things that I read that she said was that there are two currents, or streams, that we can find ourselves flowing in. And she said, the first, the first current or stream is that of the world, the current of the world, where want follows upon more want. We just get involved with more and more want, and we never really find that lasting fulfillment. But yet that sense of want is perpetually stimulated really because there is that sense of inner lack. And so we're continually looking for more, wanting, wanting, wanting. And she said, the second current is the current of one's true being. And she says, this current is what establishes one in completion. She says, if one endeavors to fulfill fulfill oneself by entering the current of true being, this current will lead one to perfect poise of one's own true being to a true sense of completion by coming here to the retreat in the way we enter into the stream of one's true being there is a natural there's a natural shift from the world to coming into a place of some renunciation. Actually, quite a lot of renunciation being here. A lot is taken away that we're used to having in our lives. A lot of choices that we're used to making. So, in a way, we've entered this stream here and left the world as we know it behind. And we're coming into a place of truth, or trueness, true in our true being. Or what may also be called the Dharma. The Dharma, or truth. But what happens here really only makes a difference if when we go back to our lives, something changes. Something, there's a difference when we go back. And perhaps there might be a way that we can find the Dharma or the truth in our life, or we may say, find a way of bringing our life into the truth or into the Dharma. But I think what truly happens is that we recognize that the world or our life in the world is already flowing in this Dharma stream that the world is always flowing in this Dharma stream. And it's really just shifting our perception or changing our view just a bit so we can see that, we can recognize that. And we can open to this current, which then becomes the current of our true being, the current of truth. And when we truly awake to this Dharma current, when we wake up to that fact, that this is truly what's happening in the world, then the choices that we make in our lives can be informed by truth or by Dharma. We say that our choices can be informed by wisdom rather than by ignorance. Wisdom rather than by not knowing or confusion or delusion, which is often what our choices can be made from unless we are connected and in touch. When our choices are connected with wisdom, they come from a deep place of knowing within ourselves, a deep connection with ourselves. And they're connected with our deepest longings and that which is truly important for us in our lives. And sometimes it does take this quieting, this stilling, so that we can get in touch with what's important for us, so that we're not pulled into the currents of the world. And the messages that get put out to us through the cultural messages that can distract us and take us away from what truly is meaningful, what truly has purpose for us in our lives, When I was reflecting on this, I was thinking about when I was growing up in a suburban town in a place called Ohio, (laughs) Ohio in the United States. (laughs) It's funny to say that in England, (laughs) because I don't think that many people know where Ohio is, and it's a funny word anyhow. (laughs) But that's where I was growing up in the Midwest of America, and I don't think that it didn't—I don't have a sense in reflecting on it, on it that there really were many messages coming from a deep place of wisdom. This isn't my my memory <laughs> of what was being taught to me or how I was being uh, uh, informed as I was growing up? And so I was desperately looking for some. Guides or some way to uh, to some signposts, some some uh, uh, reference points to know which way to go, how to how to direct myself. And the only thing that seemed to be available were these um, magazines for for young women called like Seventeen and Mademoiselle and. the Cosmopolitan wasn't out then, it was a bit, even when it came out, much more sophisticated than for a 13 or 14 year old, I hope. And really, this is what I spent my time reading and looking at, thinking that the messages that were coming through the magazines were really giving me some good, informed information about how to grow up as a young woman in the world. And when I reflect on that, I think about how, how distracting and how distorting that was for me as a, as a young woman. The messages of beauty and, and, and popularity and, and materialism and, and success. And not really being guided in a deeper way. And feeling tremendous confusion and disparity around that knowing that in my heart I was being called towards something else but not really knowing where to find that those guides so when we're in touch when we're really in touch with our deep longing with what's true for us we can have some sense of vision or sense of purpose some sense of direction for ourselves in our lives whatever that is so we know which way to go, we know how to be guided. In the Buddha Dhamma, one of the eightfold, one of the factors on the eightfold path is called wise intention. Wise intention. And intention, when the Buddha spoke about this and pointed about to this, is very much involved with knowing how to direct our actions knowing how to direct ourselves in our lives in a way that's going to bring about wholesome and beneficial results, and in a way that's going to shape our lives in a way that really feels uh, true, true to the Dharma, true to the way things are. Wise intention really is when the mind is turned towards the wholesome, or turn towards the good, which brings about these wholesome results in our lives. And the Buddha spoke about three wholesome intentions, particularly. The first being the intention of renunciation, of letting go, letting go of the wants, letting go of the desires that mislead us, that misguide us talked about the intention of metta, the intention of loving-kindness, the direct, directing that intention both inwardly and outwardly. And the third intention we spoke of was that of compassion, the intention of facing suffering, facing the painful and feeling, allowing the compassion to arise around that. So when the mind turns towards renunciation, the result that we get is non-attachment, letting go, non-attachment. When the mind turns towards metta, the result is one of non-ill-will, a non-hatred arising in the mind. And when the mind is turned towards compassion, the result is non-cruelty, There's no cruelty or harm or suffering that happens from that. And so through coming to the practice, we can cultivate these three wholesome intentions which really embrace a great deal of action that we participate in through the day. Coming to the retreat itself is already a wise intention It's already an intention that's going to bring about quite a beneficial result in our lives because it embraces the renunciation, the metta, the compassion. And each moment that we're here, in a way we're really practicing each of these three things, strengthening, reinforcing these three intentions, which then bring about these wholesome or these beneficial results for us. And not only for us, the ripples of those actions then go out and touch other people that we come into contact and situations that we come into contact with, and have very powerful results. Each intention, each intention that arises in the mind is like a seed with tremendous potential. We know that the outside on our our lawn are these three big trees. Huge, huge trees. A couple of them are these oak trees. Just huge, giant, strong trees. But the tree, each tree was grown from just a tiny acorn. A tiny seed. And in the same way, our intentions are similar to that seed. Because the smallest acorn contains the potential for a great oak tree, just as each of our intentions has the potential for something very powerful, very potent in our lives. So we say that in the same way each of our intentions and our willed actions contains the seed of our future results, or karma, The karmic results, karma being, or karma being that understanding that our actions bring results. That's our karma. So these intentions are what give shape to our lives. They give shape to our lives, so we have to be very watchful, very mindful of the intentions that arise in our mind. How are we directing? How are we aiming these intentions? as we go through the day. If we are in touch with the Dharma or the Truth or Wisdom, the Wisdom within us, then this Wisdom is going to influence those intentions. And this is what's going to make a difference to the quality of our life. For example, if we have intentions without Wisdom, that influences the quality of our life can use the example of a thief in a house. This thief has very, very clear intentions for what it wants. Not only does does the thief have a a clear intention, it also has a great deal of mindfulness, a great deal of concentration, which are the factors that we're developing, but not much wisdom. Because if there was wisdom there, there may be the potential to reflect on what are the consequences of the actions of this, these particular, this particular behavior and see that actually it could cause a great deal of harm both to oneself and the people involved. If we imagine a thread that weaves through each of our intentions, actions, and results, Imagine a thread that's woven with greed, woven with hatred and delusion. What kind of result are we going to get? If the texture of the thread is woven with these these things, if we treat someone with disrespect, we treat somebody harshly, what kind of result do we expect to get back? But if we have a thread that's woven with non-attachment, with kindness, with wisdom, what kind of result will we expect in that regard? If we treat somebody kindly, what's more likely there? These are the intentions that give a certain quality or shape to our lives. We make a distinction between good intentions and wise intentions because we may find that good is sometimes not always wise. We might have good intentions, but they may not necessarily be so helpful in the end. Sometimes when we have good intentions, this is coming much more from an idea or a moralistic attitude about how we think we should be in the world, again, coming from perhaps some kind of self-image or self-identity about how we should be. And it may not, our action or idea may not necessarily be coming from a place of wisdom. It may not be appropriate to the situation. For example, we say it's good or right not to kill. This is a very basic foundation in the Buddha Dharma. But yet we could get caught here too in the extreme when it comes to issues like abortion or euthanasia. Coming to the end of somebody's life who is suffering a great deal. This takes a different kind of reflection, a different kind of of, of knowledge, not just a question of good or bad or right or wrong. And we say it's good not to take what doesn't belong to us. It's good to take only that which is given to us. But what about, for example, if somebody owns a property that has 2,000-year-old California redwoods on it? and they want to cut them down so that people can have redwood uh, tables and toilet seats in their house. You know? So maybe then it's right to take something from that property. In other words, maybe what's happening in California sometimes is people protest. They go on the properties. They, they sit in the trees so the trees can't be cut down. So sometimes we can't say, well, that's, it's good not to do that. But we have to go deeper. We have to reflect deeper on these situations in our lives. It's good not to take drugs which alter consciousness. But what about for people who find themselves falling in extreme states of difficulty in their own mind? And sometimes it may be appropriate to take some medicine or some drugs that's going to alter the mind to bring some upliftment, bring some relief from those difficult mind states. So as we deepen into our wisdom, and we're not just coming from more moralistic attitudes or ideas about things, we become more sensitive we become more sensitive to the immediacy of of the situation and we can respond more appropriately so we don't get caught in our ideas. So good then changes to a wise response, an immediate response to a situation, very momentary. But in the beginning we need to lay down a map so in the Buddha Dharma, we lay down some uh, a map, some structures, some ideas about what is right, what's good, what's not good. Gives us a way to proceed, a way to uh, some signposts for how to signposts for how to guide ourselves. So what's good is important to cultivate in the early stages of our practice. But even that has to be let go of. Even that has to be let go of so that we're really in tune with ourselves and the momentary situation We're responding appropriately. When we're going into new territory, when we're starting to explore a new territory, we need some kind of map. We need some kind of of uh, guide guidance to know how to go, and in this way, the Buddha laid down a map for us to follow, Mm -hmm. so that we don't get lost as we're going along the way in this kind of unknown new territory. Because if we don't have some kind of idea, some kind of map, then we can easily get lost in our old habits, our old ideas of what we think we should be doing or where we should be going. And it would be hard to charter new territory in this regard. So in the same way, for our lives, it's helpful to have some kind of vision, some kind of sense of direction or meaning for where we're going, what's important. And it can be useful to take time for ourselves at times and, and think about this, get, get a sense of some direction, some vision for ourselves of what's important, what's truly important, when we really connect with the deepest longings in our heart. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I have, in last it has been suggested wow. and I've taken on this question, asking myself this particular question of what would, what would I do if I only had six months left to live? If somebody told me, like right now, I only had six months left of my life, what would I do? And I find that at times in my life when I'm wanting some sense of, of direction or purpose, it, it's very helpful for me to ask that question of myself. Well, what's really important? What What would I... What would I feel I had to do before I died? And this can really give some sense of urgency so that we're not just wasting our time. We're not just being complacent or saying, Oh, we can do it tomorrow or I'll do it next year. But that we're really taking that time to listen in and then acting on that. Making a difference in that way. It's also an interesting test just to find out what we're still kind of attached to. (laughs) What really feels important for us to do before we die. And it's good. It's good to fulfill those desires when they come from this deep place. Stephen Levine, who is one of the teachers in America, has written a book in the last year or so called A Year to Live. And it's his reflections on what would it be like if he lived his life right now in a way that he only had a year to live. And how would this change the quality of his life? And it's an experiment that he actually took on for himself and then wrote about and and produced a a guide, a, a manual for other people to follow to wake up, to help us wake up, to feel some sense of urgency about this time that we're alive so that we don't become too complacent. Because the time is now. We don't know how much longer we have to live. We can say, oh yeah, well, it's a good, good fantasy six months left to live. You know, I can play with that one. But what if it's true? <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. So in a way, what would it be like to live life as if we only had a year to live? How would it be different for us? Perhaps it, it would help us have some kind of map or some kind of, of guidance for us to how to proceed if we feel a little lost in these uncharted territory, uh, these sea, uncharted seas of our life. So it's helpful to give some time and reflection so that we have some kind of vision. And it doesn't have to be grand, just something, so we know which direction we're walking in. Once we get some sense of direction, and it could just even be for the the week, just till the end of the week, how do I want to be here this week? then we must have the intention or the commitment to follow it. When we get in touch with these deeper longings, then we need to act on it, which is the next factor, because it's, we can spend time looking and reflecting on what we'd like and the vision and the fantasy, but perhaps we don't really feel the deeper motivation to act on it. So we must have the intention. An intention in the Buddha-Dhamma is the active element of mind that directs the energy, that aims the energy, moment to moment to moment. An intention is actually, it's considered a mental factor that arises in each moment of experience, and we can feel it. When we get quite sensitive and we, we reflect in our meditation, we can actually almost feel the energetic impulse that arises when we're about to act. It's that about-to moment. <laughs> it's an about-to moment. And on retreats, it's possible sometimes if we want to reflect on take take, take a look at this. It's like when we're reaching for a door and just as we touch the doorknob, we can feel that impulse to move the hand, to gr- to shift the hand, to grab the doorknob. It's actually an impulse or an intention that we can feel energetically. And it arises in each moment when we're sensitive, when we're in touch. And it's this intention that can connect us with what is important for ourselves in our lives, when we're in touch with it. And it's this intention which also allows us to start again when we go off track, because we know where to return back to. We have the intention for some result. We have the intention for something to happen. So we know where to connect back to. In the meditation, we cultivate this power of intention through the art of returning. Through the art of returning. The meditation technique, in this case when we talk about coming back to the breath or coming back to the sound, this in a way gives us the map of where how, how, to, how to direct ourselves, but then the intention gives us that, that energy to stay on track. So we have the, the intention to return, the intention to reconnect, the re- intention to be here in the present moment. And this reconnecting gives us a steadiness of attention and it really awakens our heart to what's true to what matters. All kinds of meditation really cultivates this art of returning, or it cultivates the power of intention to reconnect, to follow the map, or to stay on track. Whether it's a visualization technique, or whether it's a questioning, like what is it, or who am I, whether it's a prayer, whether it's mantra, it's all about reconnecting returning coming back and and cultivating the strength of that intention it's all around this intention and in cultivating this we realize and we come to know the power of intention in the mind the power when we direct or aim our energy in a particular way to bring about certain results the results that we want in this case the potential for uh, an awake mind, the potential for a liberated mind, the potential for a focused mind, a clear mind. And in this way, by re- returning again and again, we learn the discipline. We learn how to discipline our chaotic minds, just like steadying a, a canoe in rough waters we learn how to be steady even when the waters are rough or there's a storm coming up so the intention, how important this is in our lives in, in the meditation or in our daily lives, whatever, we, whatever we're doing what is it that we're aiming at? what is it that we're... where are we going? where are we going? But yet, there's a very special key in finding the balance of working with intention. Because what has to happen is we stay focused on the intention, but we have to let go of the result. We can't be attached to where we actually wind up. All we have is the intention, but what actually happens unfortunately is completely out of our control. <laughs> we would like to think that if we have a strong intention we'll actually get what we want, <laughs> but it doesn't work like that. The intention Help bring help. It means that there'll be more likelihood that we'll get what we want, <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily mean we'll get what we want. Thich Ngan Han, Hanh, the great Vietnamese Zen master, says, "If I lose my direction, I have to look for the North Star, and I go and I go north." that does not mean i expect to arrive at the north star i just want to go in that direction so the intention and the direction that we're going in gives some guidance but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to wind up there and i think this is where we get caught this is where we get trapped because we get very demanding We think that, well, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing, and I have strong intention, and I have commitment, but I'm not getting what I want. (laughs) And this is truly where the practice is. It's in the letting go. It's in this balance of the intention and the letting go. But I think we often forget about the letting go part, the letting go of what actually happens. If I actually expect to arrive at my destination and something else happens, it's likely I'm going to be quite angry and quite disappointed depending on how attached I am to that result. And if I'm really attached and I'm caught up in my anger and my disappointment, what happens? I miss the wonder of the journey. I miss the magic of the journey. And it seems that we so often do that. We get so fixated, so caught up in where we're actually trying to get to or what we want to see happen or the result of our action, and we forget the joy. We forget the joy. We forget the wonder. We forget the mystery of the journey which is truly where the joy arises it's truly where the happiness arises in that in the unexpected in the unknowing one time and i've I've told this short story before but one time i was flying from the east coast of america to um, san francisco and you know I, I fly fairly often, and so it was just a routine flight. And when we were getting near the Rocky Mountains, something was happening. I think we were running out of fuel or something. And what and what came over the loud over the loudspeaker was the captain saying, um, "No, we weren't running out of fuel. I that. <laughs> that's a little dramatic. <laughs> I think it was just there was too much fog in San Francisco or something." <laughs> <laughs> and we couldn't land. But so the captain came over the loudspeaker and said, um, we're going to be landing in Las Vegas, you know, in about half an hour. And, I, and I, I've never been to Las Vegas before. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, that's interesting. I've never wanted to go to Las Vegas. <laughs> I've never had any interest in going there. It's not really my cup of tea. But within a half an hour, there I was, not only landing in Las Vegas, but being ushered off the airplane and into a casino (laughs) with lots of flashing lights, and it was probably 10 o'clock at night and it looked like daylight, just all these neon flashing lights, ringing uh, slot machines. And and I was actually in there, (laughs) uh, being booked into the hotel for the night and told that my plane would leave the next morning at 10 o'clock and I could do anything I wanted all night long. (laughs) I had a free hotel room in the casino and uh, I I I did go to sleep. (laughs) But I know that there were other passengers on the plane that were really delighted (laughs) and were up all night gambling and were having a really good time. But, you know, if I was really attached to getting to San Francisco, I probably could could have been extremely miserable, but it was quite an unexpected, somewhat joyful journey because I've always wondered what Las Vegas was like, and I was able to get somewhat of a look at it from landing and from taking off and being in the casino. So we don't know, but yet there can be such um, serendipity when we really are able to let go but in the same way in the way that I was talking the other night we do tend to take things rather seriously we don't seem to be able to hold things very lightly we want to be able to fix we want to be able to say yes, I want this and why can't I get it? very hard to let go I like to tell the story of, of what happened um, one time when I was home and I was uh, with my my family on my father's boat, my father's yacht. It might be called. I guess it's about 36 foot, so that might be called a yacht. But we were out on the sea. And as I we the whole time I was growing up my father had a boat. It got bigger, seemed like it got bigger each year as I was growing up. And I was it's about, um, maybe eight years ago. And we were out on, on the sea on the lake, actually, Lake Erie. And my father asked me if I wanted to uh command the boat, which I've never done in all the years. He's he's always done it. So I thought, yeah, what the heck? So <laughs> So it was like I said, a big boat. So I was on top. He was sitting next to me. And um, he said, all you have to do, there's a compass, and he said, all you have to do is keep the needle on north. Keep the needle on north. And I didn't actually have to look at anything else but the compass. So uh, I was sitting there. It was on top of a flying bridge, and I had the wheel in my hand. And I noticed that I couldn't keep the needle on north. That would happen because of the mechanism and the nature of the boat. The boat kept veering off to another direction. So I was, was keeping, trying to keep the wheel straight on north, but then the boat would veer off. And so my job really was, was to keep bringing it back. To turn the wheel to come back to north. And then as I was turning the wheel, say, to the right, then the boat would veer off to the right because of the nature and the the weight, the strength of the boat. So then what I had to do is just bring the wheel back to north. And it was very interesting for me to reflect on that because I realized that I couldn't keep the boat fixed in a position. I couldn't just keep say, okay, I want to go in this direction and go in that direction. But the boat was going to go in the direction it wanted to go in because that's the nature of things. Nothing can be fixed in the universe. Nothing is stuck or nothing can be in one position in the universe. It's always moving, always shifting, always changing. So the boat kept veering off. So all I had to do was bring it back. It was really very simple, but it was the coming back, the coming back. And I realized that that even when I think that I should be staying on a particular track, that that isn't what it's about. Just like with the breath, it's not about just staying with the breath, it's just the coming back, coming back to the point of intention, the point of commitment or the map, so to speak. And in the same way, with the boat, I needed to have a map, I needed to have the north compass, or I wouldn't wouldn't have known where I was on this open sea. But because I had some sense of direction, I could guide the boat in the way that I wanted to go. So it's not about trying to fix ourselves once we get some kind of vision, once we get some kind of direction, but actually just to bring ourselves back bring ourselves back and also I may have a map and I may think I know where I'm going but there's so many factors involved that can change in using this metaphor for example the boat could run out of fuel we could be stranded in the middle of the sea till oh, no, till a life life um, the life crew came or the compass could break you know, but I'm, you know, really relying on that, but the compass breaks, then what? You know, or we run into some bad weather and it changes the whole plan. I mean, there's so many factors. There's moment to moment to moment. There's so many contingent factors that completely can change our plan. We have to let go. We have to let go. We don't know what's going to happen. So we have to let go of our fixation, or we might say obsession, that sometimes happens, on the result, how we want things to be, how we want things to go. We have our pictures, our ideas, our visions, but they might be unrealistic. They may not even match the true conditions in our life. They may not fit. We may not know until we actually come and find out. There was one woman who came at the beginning of this retreat and she had been she had an accident about four months ago with a with a bicycle and she was in the hospital for a few months and she had been doing quite a lot of healing. And she signed up for the retreat, but once she got here she realized that part of her healing now was actually to be more outward, that she was through a particular healing stage now, and she didn't need to be so inward, she didn't need to be so quiet, so that she needed to be more out with people, engaged. And initially she thought that she actually made a mistake, that she failed in some way by deciding to come here and then have to leave. It wasn't that, she didn't know until she got here that the factors had changed. It was actually by entering into the original plan that she found out that that actually she's on a different course now, on a different track. So sometimes we actually have to come into the situation to find out that things have changed. So if we're really listening, if we're really in touch if we're connected with our experience then we can respond and perhaps we don't have to bring in the thoughts of of of, uh, criticism or judgment or thoughts that we failed or that we've done something wrong but just that the course has changed the plan has changed can we look at it like that just by staying in touch moment-to-moment in that way. So holding things lightly. Because if we do, it's likely that we'll be less reactive. We'll have more clarity of mind to really approach the situation in the moment. And we won't be blaming ourselves and making ourselves wrong and taking things so personally and then feeling all the shame and the self-pity around that. It's just that things change. When I hold on too tightly, too tightly to the result, I'm taking too much responsibility for how things go. And this really strengthens that sense of self, and I am, and I want, and I need. We're just strengthening that sense of ourselves. We strengthen the ego through this taking on responsibility in this way. When we say to ourselves, I have to make it happen. It's my responsibility. Why do things always happen to me? Things don't go my way taking too much responsibility not enough letting go let go there's too many factors in life that are so outside of our control and when we can come more into the truth of things we can allow ourselves to flow with the stream, with this current the current of, of life current of truth, the current of dharma. We don't have to hold on so tightly to things. In this way, we can participate more completely in the journey. We can be more engaged. We can feel more joy. and this allows so much more room for creativity for the unexpected for the mystery and we can really be involved with our whole being not just with our sort of narrow view of how we think things should be but our whole being can get involved in that and that in that event in that interaction The intention directs the energy and the letting go is the wisdom we bring so that we don't suffer. We don't suffer from holding on too tightly. So this all has a great deal of power the intention and the letting go the intention and letting go the play of these two moment to moment to moment intention arises in the mind we direct the energy we aim the energy and let go we don't know what's gonna happen we don't know what something's gonna look like we don't know what our meditation's gonna show up like we don't know what the day's gonna look like We don't know what kind of moods we're going to be in. We don't know what kind of experiences we'll have. But it's a mysterious journey. It's a mysterious journey. And for myself, truly, I found that that is where the exhilaration, that's where the vitality, that's where the joy starts to arise from. When I can open into that space of mystery, that space of not knowing not needing to know which does take a great deal of trust a great deal of trust that perhaps we will be held if we allow ourselves to fall we let go and allow ourselves to fall. Maybe the Dharma will catch us. Can we trust that? Can we take the leap and find out whether there truly is a Dharma net there? <laughs> waiting for us I want to encourage you to do this because I think there is (laughs) I think I'll end there let's sit for a few minutes together May all beings know what's wise. May all beings know what's true. May all beings live in accord with the Dhamma.